Well, good morning, everyone. It's been a great, great service already with the uh, music and uh, testimony from uh, Kirsten. And um, as I get ready to speak today, I don't do so without first telling a little story. So there are a number of men in this church that love to play golf. Um, I'm one of them, and there's going to be a golf trip uh, in February to Myrtle Beach with the men of the church. Uh, Dennis likes to, likes to play golf. But this one pastor who loved golf and had been very faithful in preaching. In fact, he preached for 10 years without ever missing a sermon. And he woke up one day and he looked out the window and it was sunny and it was warm and the golf clubs were calling him. So he got on the phone, he called his assistant pastor he said, I'm not feeling, not feeling good. Can you, can you cover for me? And the assistant pastor said, man, you've not missed a sermon in 10 years. I will be glad to cover for you today. So now excited that he had coverage for his church, he grabbed his clubs, he went to the course, got out there and started to shoot the round of his life. In fact, on the first three par threes, he had holes in one. He was doing unbelievable. Well, St. Peter was watching from heaven, and he was getting mad. And he went up to the Lord. He said, Lord, your servant down there, he faked a, a cough and a cold. He lied to his assistant. He's skipping church this morning, and you're letting him shoot the best round of his life. Why are you doing that? And the Lord looked at Peter and said, who's he going to tell? Okay, so now we have to go from that uh, to the message, and uh, let's just have a brief word of prayer. Lord, we want to thank you for this morning. We uh, think of uh, Kirsten as she gets ready to go on her next trip, and the Harlan team, and also we have a team at Boys Village this morning sharing the gospel, so we want to pray that once again from this church the gospel will go out. Today, as people listen to the message, I want to pray if there are any here that don't know you as Savior, today they would come to know you as their Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I think this thing is on. Oh, wrong side. Okay, um, today's message is called Welcome Christ, the Omnipotent One. So I wanted to start out with a definition from the dictionary. You can see it on the screen here. It's the quality of having unlimited or very great power. And the Oxford Dictionary apparently even uses the example of God's omnipotence. And there are some other terms that we can use for that. All powerfulness, almightiness, supremacy, preeminence. Supreme power, absolute power, unlimited power, and undisputed sway. And all of those are attributes of our omnipotent God. Before I get into some scriptural examples from both the Old and New Testament of God's omnipotence, I want to tell a little story from when I was in high school. When I was a sophomore, um, they were building the high school in my town. We didn't have a high school, so I had to go to another town. 
The building was probably 100 years old. We had this old little dingy gym. But one of the things they did in PE is they taught you different sports in the class. And we had a time during the winter where we did wrestling. And what the PE teacher tried to do is he tried to pair us up according to our size and weight. When I was a sophomore in high school, I probably weighed 135 pounds. So the guys that I wrestled with would be anywhere from about 125 to 145 pounds, just to try to make it as equal as possible. We did what um, a lot of the uh, wrestlers do across the country. We had three two-minute periods of wrestling in a gym class, and we learned all the different moves and everything else. Well, this one day, two guys were chosen to go out to the mat. We probably, you know, the that would last six minutes, and we probably had a 45-minute period. So there were days you didn't do anything. You just watched. So one guy's name was Bob. Bob was about 5'8", but he weighed about 200 pounds. Now remember, folks, these are high school days when we were all younger and skinnier. So, so 200 pounds for a sophomore in high school, that was pretty big. And he was paired with a guy named Bob, who was the son of a plumber and was bigger than Bob. So we had, I'm sorry, Bob and Jim. So Jim was the son of the plumber. So anyway, we're excited to see what's going to happen because Bob at 5'8", 200, was kind of a bully. He liked to get into fist fights. He had a quick temper. And because of this, everybody really feared Bob. Nobody really knew about Jim. So anyway, the high school uh, teacher blows the whistle. The two guys go out against each other, and basically what Jim does, he goes over and puts his arms around Bob, he turns him upside down, slams him to the mat, and pinned him in five seconds. I had never seen anything like that in gym class. I mean, there were guys that were bigger and stronger, you know, they wrestle around and take a minute or two to pin the guy. This guy pinned him in five seconds. We no longer feared Bob. But we had a great respect for Jim and his power. And speaking about power, we as humans, we have some power. We have power over the animal kingdom. But we do not possess the power that God's angels have. We don't possess the power that the devil has. But there is one who will defeat the devil, who has all power, and that's Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's, and when he defeats the devil at the end, it's going to make it look like Jim's victory over Bob on the wrestling mat was nothing compared to what Christ is going to do when he comes back and establishes his rule. Last week, Elder James introduced the Advent series with the title of What Child Is This? That is one of my all-time favorite Christmas songs. And let's be honest, this is the favorite time of the year for people that associate with Christianity around the world. We celebrate it earlier and earlier and earlier, don't we? I mean, the stores, even around Halloween time, are putting up Christmas decorations. Um, We love the story of Christ being born and being placed in a manger and having the wise men come and visit Uh, There are a lot of Christmas songs that celebrate when Christ was born. We sing them. We enjoy them. But that baby child who was born a couple thousand years ago, humbling himself, coming to earth as God and man, 
He is the omnipotent one. And we're going to look at that now. So let's take a look at some of these passages. I'm not going to read them word for word. Most of you are familiar with the passages. But when God created the world, basically what he did is he had a six-day creation. We firmly believe in that at Grace Church. We've actually turned away a couple pastoral candidates because they couldn't tell us whether the earth was created in six days or 6,000 years or 6 million years or 6 billion years. What God did is he established time. He created the earth, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the land, the water, plant life, animal life, and human life. And there's a mention of the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. And when God was ready to create Adam and Eve, he said, let us create man in our image. Because you see, we have a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we have confirmation of this in John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. He's the Word of God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus Christ is ruled from the beginning of eternity. He's been there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and He established us. Even in the Old Testament, Proverbs 34, and I used this in a message uh, about a year ago. This is what Proverbs 34 says. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped, the waters, has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established the ends of the earth as the creator? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. So the writer of Proverbs was acknowledging Christ in the Old Testament. Another way that we can see Christ's power is through the creation of the human body. I am the father of four children. And I am the grandfather of 13 children. My wife and I were blessed beyond measure having this family. Um, I was with my wife when all four of our children were born. I witnessed the miracle of the birth. And David talks about this in Psalm 139, 13 to 18. He talks about how God wove his body in secret in his mother's womb and he mentions that God's thoughts about this wonderful creation were innumerable. There were so many things they could not be counted. And once again, this goes back to God's power in creating man in his image. Remember, he said, let us create man in our image. And even some non-believers, when they have their first child, they recognize that there is something very special because that little fertilized egg that's pretty much microscopic, nine months later comes out as a child somewhere around 20 inches in size, weighing anywhere from, you know, 
average probably seven or eight pounds, and we have extremes on either end of that. Uh, and it's just unbelievable. Uh, this is a miracle of God's power. Let's take a look at uh, some of the New Testament proofs. I think that jumped twice. Let's see. Nope. Okay. We have Christ's power in providing and multiplying food, the loaves and fishes, to the crowd of 5,000 and then the crowd of 4,000. That would be the men and their families that were there. So in a crowd of 5,000, you know, if it was just a family of four that was there, probably about 20,000 people in attendance, husband, wife, two children. And uh, you could say probably 16,000 in attendance with the 4,000 men in the crowd. And in the first case, the feeding of the 5,000, there were only five loaves and two fish. And Jesus took that and he multiplied it into the baskets. And when it was all done and they collected the leftovers, there were 12 baskets. With the crowd of 4,000, there were uh, seven loaves and a couple small fish. And when they got done feeding that crowd, there were seven baskets left over. But we shouldn't be surprised at this because the Old Testament alluded to some miracles where God took and provided food, and he multiplied it. One example, and uh, this was mentioned at our uh, men's basketball on Monday night, one example was the widow of Zarephath. She was down to her last little bit of flour and oil. And Elijah the prophet came up to her and asked her to take that last little portion and to provide a meal for him. That's pretty bold to do that when she was just going to eat it and her and her son were going to die. And what Elijah did is he prayed to the Lord on her behalf and her jar of oil and her jar of flour never ran empty until that three and a half year drought was over and it began to rain and produce food on the land again. Then you think about the Israelites when they were rescued from slavery in Egypt and they came out into the desert wilderness. What did God do every morning? He provided manna for them. And on Saturday, they could collect enough manna that would carry them through Sunday, which was the day of rest. So when Jesus came to earth and he performed these two miraculous feedings of the crowds, he was just continuing what he had done in Old Testament times in several of these circumstances. Luke 8.25 says this, Where is your faith? Jesus asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, the backdrop for this story is that Jesus had just presented the parable of the seeds that were sown along the path. And I mentioned in a sermon a while back that the final set of seeds that fell onto the fertile soil produced a crop that was 30 times, 60 times, or 100 times greater than the seeds that were planted. And I mentioned that I, as a believer, I would like to be a witness so that 30, 60, or 100 people come to heaven because of the way I've witnessed witnessed for him and lived my life. So Jesus does this story... And he preaches, then they get onto a boat, and he is very tired because he is ministering all day, every day, a lot of times into the evening. 
So he goes onto the boat. He falls sound asleep, and then a sudden storm comes up on the lake, and he is sleeping through the storm. And his disciples are alarmed. They think the boat's going to capsize, and they're all going to drown and die. So they wake him up, and in his great power, in his omnipotence, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and the sea became calm. And the natural reaction from his amazed disciples was in the form of a question. Who is this who commands the winds and the water and they obey him? Well, it's the omnipotent one who does that. Okay. There we go. Matthew 9, 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, just prior to this event, Jesus was ministering in an area, and he encountered two demon-possessed men. And because he's the omnipotent one, he cast the demons out of the men and put them into a herd of pigs. And a herd of pigs ran down the hillside and were drowned in the sea. Now, the people didn't like that, and they asked Jesus to leave. Well, you see, the people were being disobedient because the Jewish people were commanded not to eat pork back then. The pig was considered to be an unclean animal. What did Jesus do? He took the demons who were unclean, cast them into unclean animals, and then he went into the sea and they drowned. So after he performs this miracle and the people ask him to leave... He then goes to the next location where he encounters a crippled man who was suffering from palsy. When Jesus forgave the man's sins, the scribes and the religious leaders who were there accused Jesus of blasphemy because he was equating himself with God. Well, guess what? He was God. And so what he then did to prove to them that he had the power to forgive the sins He healed the paralytic, and the paralytic picked up his mat, and he walked out of there a healed man. John 10, 18 says this, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, previous to Jesus talking about the story of the Good Shepherd, the parable of the Good Shepherd, he reminded everyone in the crowd that Satan was a thief who came to kill, to steal, and destroy. And folks, we see that happening all over the earth today. One of the most recent examples, of course, was the attack of Hamas on Israel on October the 7th. And now we see warfare and more bloodshed occurring because the father of lies and killing and stealing and destroying had his way there in the Middle East. But Christ said that I've come to give you a life and a life to the full. So then he continues with his story and he says this, that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep and for his flock. In verse 17, he mentions that his father loves him because he's laying down his life that he might take it up again. In verse 18, he states that no man has the power to take his life, but he voluntarily lays it down, and that he has the power to do so, and he has the power to take it back again. And this is prophetic, because 
He was describing the future crucifixion in which he took our sins upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. But then he would be resurrected back to life to prove his power over death and to grant eternal life to his flock, to those who believed. You might even remember he, he told Pilate when he was getting ready to be sentenced that Pilate wouldn't be able to do anything if Jesus didn't give him that authority. This is uh, one of the neatest things here. This is really the crux of today's message. John 17, 1 and 2, I'll read that, and then we'll look at these other scriptures. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now, in chapter 16 of John, we find out that Jesus is about to be crucified in his omniscience, because not only is he an all-powerful God, he's an all-knowing God, he told the disciples what would happen, and he told them that you guys are all going to scatter. He knew the fear that would set in. But he reminded them to be a good cheer, because he, as the omnipotent one, had overcome the world. So he goes into the garden to intensely pray to his Father in heaven. Then he mentions that God gave him the authority, the power, to save those who the Father has given him. And in verse 3 of John 17, it says this, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is what now, folks, separates Christianity from all the false religions in the world. They have no way to God, or they have dozens or hundreds of ways to God or to the different gods that they proclaim. And we have some verses here, and you probably know most of these by heart. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him, through Jesus Christ. John 3.36 in the same chapter says this, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And folks, if people don't trust Christ as their savior, there's going to be a wrath. They're going to spend eternity separated from their Savior in a place called hell. John 14, 6 makes it crystal clear who we get salvation from. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who comes to the Father must come through me. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Krishna, not any of the other thousands of gods that people proclaim. And by the way, I believe that all of those gods are basically demons that have misled people and caused them to worship them. Uh, John, 1 John 5, 11 to 13. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't it good that he gives us uh, a little extra confidence that when we place our trust and faith in him, he does give us eternal life? 
And then Acts 4.12 says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I don't know how it becomes any more clear in Scripture that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. Now we talk a little bit about Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read uh, this verse, just, just 28, 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The King James Version says this, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. We recognize this as the first verse in the Great Commission. In our church, exercises the Great Commission. We have the Harlan team. We had a team go up to Pennsylvania a few weeks ago. We got Kirsten out there. We got the Edelins in Papua New Guinea. And we got missionaries around the world that are spreading the word. After the disciples witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus and they abandoned him, they were greatly discouraged. But their tears were turned to joy when he visited them after he was resurrected. And of course, that shows Christ's power over death. When he was about to be taken back to heaven, he said, All power is given to me on heaven and earth. And what the Father does here is he rightly bestows on his risen Son the power that was his from all eternity, from the very beginning. Based on Christ's authority and power, the disciples were instructed to go out and to preach the gospel to all the nations and to baptize new believers in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the neat things that I like when we have services is when we have people getting baptized. There are several people in here in the last year have been baptized. And what they do is they get up there and they proclaim to us that they've accepted Christ as their Savior, and then whoever is baptizing them, baptizes them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've had family members baptize grandkids and stuff. I mean, how neat is that? But we at Grace Church believe in this practice. You first come to Christ, then you publicly profess Him, and you can be baptized. <clears throat> now to wrap up this message... We want to talk a little bit about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, a favorite verse of mine, and many others, is the verse that Elder James shared last week that is often quoted at Christmas time Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God the omnipotent one, everlasting father, showing his omnipotence, and the prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now that was an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah. It was partially fulfilled when Christ came back, but we are awaiting his second coming. And this is the hope of the ages. We're waiting for him. Now, we at Grace Church believe that what's going to happen in the near future is that Christians are going to be raptured and taken up to heaven with him. Then we believe there's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth, which is the worst time in human history. And then that Christ will come back at the end of the seven years to set up 
his earthly kingdom, and that earthly kingdom will last for 1,000 years. During that time, Satan is going to be in the bottomless pit, and he will not be able to tempt people. And I believe that what Christ is going to do then is he's going to make the earth beautiful again, get rid of the pollution. He's going to rule. There's going to be peace on earth. That's what we pray for. That's what Christmas songs are about, peace on earth, goodwill to men. In the Lord's Prayer, we're commanded to say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we're waiting for his return. We will come back as believers and we will rule with him during that thousand-year millennial reign and we will see peace on earth. Can anyone in here believe that right now man is capable of ruling on the earth and ruling justly? Does anybody believe that? Is there any record of that other than maybe short periods of time here and there? Uh, It's not working out for us. And 6,000 years of human history prove that we are not capable of ruling ourselves justly. All throughout the earth, people are in prison, people are murdered, uh, violence, warfare. We can't do it. So let's look at Revelation 19.6, which refers to his coming kingdom. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Wow, that little baby in the manger is now Lord God omnipotent. He's going to reign. Verses 11 to 16 summarize Christ's omnipotence. No longer is he the babe in the manger. Now he is coming with power. He's faithful and true. He judges and makes war. His eyes are flames of fire. There are many crowns on his head. He has a name that no one knows except him himself. He's clothed in a vesture dipped in blood because he gave his blood to pay for the penalty of our sins. His name is the word of God. And that's confirmed in John 1, 1 to 3 that we talked about. He had heavenly armies with him. Out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword to smite the nations, those people who don't believe in him. He will rule with a rod of iron, and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why we celebrate the birth of this child, the Savior coming to earth. In Revelation chapter 20, the omnipotent one defeats Satan, and he casts them into the lake of fire, And he judges unbelievers, those who have rejected him as Savior. In verse 15, we have what I believe is the most sobering message in the Bible. Revelation 20, verse 15 says this, Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let me say that one more time. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That is why we preach the gospel here at Grace Church. Because we don't want anybody to go to hell. That's why our mission teams go out and we have missionaries. Because they're trying to get the name out there so people accept Christ and they avoid the judgment. Please, during this Christmas season... If you have not made the decision to personally invite Christ into your life, today is the day of salvation. Please do that. And by the way, at the end of the service, we'll have our elders and prayer team up here. If you don't know how to do that, we'll be glad to explain the gospel message again and and to pray with you. In chapters 21 and 22, the omnipotent one will establish the new heavens and the new earth where believers will live with him for all eternity. 
And he's going to provide living water for us to drink and trees of life to guarantee that we will live with him forever in paradise. No more death, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow. What I would like to do to end the service is I have a a prayer that's actually the second verse of a Christmas carol. So what I want to do is invite the uh, prayer team to come up right now. And this is verse 2 of the Christmas song, Come Thou, Long Expected Jesus. And we'll end with this prayer. Lord, born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Amen.